I are in the Alaskan wilderness, in the mountains and in the glaciers. I don't have any children. I have no gray hair yet. My knees are strong. And we're setting out together on a hike this morning. And we're headed down the side of the Root Glacier, where seven miles off in the distance is the Stairway Icefall. The Stairway Icefall is outside of the Himalayas, the largest icefall in the world. Now, we weren't going to climb this. In fact, we didn't even get all that close to it. We only made it about four miles of the seven, as it turned out. But that morning, as we set out, it was glorious. Now, some of you might be asking, why on earth would you be hiking over crevasses and around the side of the glacier and up and down scree-filled slopes. I know at least that's probably what Harrison's asking this morning, some of you as well. Well, it's because it's beautiful. It's beautiful. We're out in the mountain air, clean air, silence, and a gorgeous landscape of God's creation set out before us. And that day, with every step we took, we got closer and closer to that icefall. And with every hour that we approached this, the beauty and the majesty and the sheer immensity of this icefall grew and grew. It was a just sight. Well, this morning we are in this text of God's word found in Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to ask you to get the Bible open in front of you once again, or get it up on your phone if you would. Colossians chapter 1. Because we're going to see something even more beautiful than what Kathy and I saw that day 20 years ago as we take some steps forward slowly through this text this morning. So with that text open in front of you, can I ask you to just pause once more with me and let's pray for God's help. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the beauty and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ We know that our eyes are darkened, our hearts are cold, our attention wanes, and so we ask for your help, that by your Spirit, you would give us all that we need. You would illumine our hearts and our minds with your supernatural light, that we might see Jesus this morning. And we ask it in his name and for his glory. Amen. So there's a question that I've got to ask you from this text this morning, and the question is this. How big is your Jesus? When you think of Jesus, how how big is he really? That's the question from our text this morning. How majestic, how glorious, how awe-inspiring, how beautiful, how precious to you is Jesus this morning? And I have to warn you that right now, as we take these steps through this text together during these next minutes, Jesus Christ is going to loom ever larger before us. And for those of you who love Jesus Christ, belong to him, you are believers in him and trusting in him, that's going to be a beautiful thing, I hope, for us this morning. But there are some of you here, I know, who are not in that position, that you might be interested in Jesus, you might be curious about Jesus, but you are going to be faced this morning with a Jesus who is perhaps greater than you ever reckoned with. And that might be an unsettling thing, but can I ask you, 
Whoever you are this morning, would you give your full attention to what it is that God wants to reveal to us in his word about the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? These are precious words. And we're going to find that our vision of Jesus grows and grows this morning. And the reality that we're working towards is found right there at the end of verse 18. Have a look at the end of that last clause in verse 18. That in everything... He, that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, might be preeminent. Did you ever notice that on the front of our, our notice sheets, just, just have a look there for a moment. You know, we've got the date, we've got the church, we've got the welcome message. You see over there to the right, Colossians 1.18. It's such an important text that we've taken it as a kind of headline text for what we as a church are about that in all things Christ might have supremacy. Now, in our Bibles, the translation we're using this morning, it's a slightly different word. That in all things, in everything, he might be preeminent. What does that mean? Have you ever thought about that word? What does it mean for Jesus to be preeminent? Well, preeminent means something that is first, something that is the best or the greatest. In Premier League football terms, we know what preeminent looks like this season, don't we? It looks like Liverpool. They're untouchable. They're in a category completely of their own. And you might have seen in the news this past week, the young lad from Donegal who wrote to Jurgen Klopp, and he said, please, could you make Liverpool lose just once? I'm a Man City supporter. And Jurgen Klopp responded and said, thanks for your nice letter, but no. I can't. My job is to make them win. Liverpool are preeminent this season. Preeminent. It's a title. It's a title in our text. It means to be without competitor, the greatest, the supreme. So verse 18, it's a title that God in his word gives to Jesus alone, that he might be preeminent. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done, our text tells us, Jesus Christ ought to be, ought to be preeminent, the most highly honored of anything or anyone in your entire life, that in everything he might be preeminent. I wonder, is that true of you today? Is Jesus Christ preeminent over all things in your life? Well, we have to set a little bit of context before we're going to really... Uh, take some time thinking about the precious truths in verses 17 and 18. But let's, let's set context for just a moment. Our focus is on verses 17 and 18, but these verses come in the middle of a section that many commentators refer to as a, as a Christ hymn. And they're talking about verses 15 to 20. And maybe you can see there as you look down at the text, it begins, He is the image of the invisible God. Can I read those verses again so they're fresh in our minds? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He, him, his, right through that entire section. Whom are we referring to? Well, of course, we know from verses 13 and 14, we're referring to Jesus, the Son of the Father. Did you hear the poetic rhythm and the balance? All things, all things, everything repeated. He is the image, firstborn, firstborn. This is a beautifully, carefully composed text. But there's a danger when commentators and preachers come onto this text that sometimes, sometimes we look very carefully at the composition of the text, but we forget to follow where the text is pointing and to see not just the poetry, but the person. So, uh, boys and girls, you might have a sheet in front of you this morning, and you can see there uh, that, that it's, it's a bit like if we go outside in the night sky, and I point to my children and say, there, look at that full moon. It's a gorgeous, huge super moon, and I'm pointing at the moon. And if one of my little children is staring, fixated at my finger, and sees the finger, but not what the finger is pointing to. That's not what I'm intending, is it? And it's the same for us in this text. Yes, it's a beautifully composed text, but we don't want to get lost in composition. We want to see Christ. We don't just want to see the poetry. We want to see the person, the person that's being pointed to here, the person of Jesus Christ, in order that for you and for me and for this congregation, Jesus might be preeminent. So let's think a little bit about the larger context that these verses fall in. Do you see what's happening in chapter 1? Harrison read for us all the way from verse 1 to verse 23. And if you have a look at verse 3, you see how Paul begins, as he so often... What's he doing in verse 3? He's praying. He says, we thank, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Paul begins by praying for these believers in that church in Colossae. Now jump down with your eyes to verse 9, because it's a long prayer. Paul's a pastor. He knows how to pray and keep praying. But it's a good prayer. It's a rich prayer. And in verse 9, he's still praying for Christians. He says, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now, notice what Paul prays here. What's the purpose of his prayer? What's the aim for which he's praying? He prays, as we go on in verse 9, in order that you may be filled. Filled with what? Well, keep going in verse 9. Filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why does Paul pray that? Well, keep going. Verse 10 tells us why. So that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit, and on it goes. Do you see the flow of thought as we step back here and think about the big context? Paul prays that Christians will grow in their spiritual knowledge and wisdom, not for the sake of having more knowledge alone, but so that with that knowledge, they will be able to walk worthily. That's another way of saying they will be able to live in a manner that pleases the Lord. Knowledge for the sake of godly living. Knowledge for the sake of godly growth, gospel growth. Knowledge for the sake of sanctification, gospel fruit, as verse 10 goes on. Verse 11, knowledge for the sake of strength 
in the spiritual life, the Christian life. Verse 11 goes on, knowledge for the sake of endurance and patience and joy. You see, Paul's praying that their knowledge would increase so that their lives would increase with spiritual uh, endurance and strength and joy in the Lord Jesus. And then we come to verse 12. And it's knowledge there that drives Christians to give thanks to the Father. And here, do you see what Paul's doing? Do you see what he's doing in in this extended prayer that began in verse 3, carries on verse 9 and following? Paul is beginning, even as he prays, to supply some of the answer to his prayer. He's praying that they will grow in knowledge, and now he starts to give them some of that knowledge that he wants them to take in, some of that spiritual wisdom and insight. And what is that knowledge that Paul offers to them? Well, in verse 12, he tells them about what God the Father has done. Verse 13, he moves from the Father, look at verse 13 carefully, he delivered us, that is the Father, delivered us from the domain of darkness, and he moves from the Father to the Son, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And from verse 13, 14 and on, it's all about the Son. We get to the heart of the knowledge that Paul wants us to have, that he's praying that we might have so that we can have all of those things happen in our spiritual lives that he's praying about. These are theological truths that prepare us for the Christian life, prepare us to walk in a way that pleases the Lord, and prepare us to worship God, to give thanks to him in the way that we ought to do. In fact, from verse 14 onward, these are Christological truths, truths about Jesus Christ that we have to know, that we have to understand, that we desperately need. So, now we're ready to have a look at verses 17 to 18 because they sit right at the center of this beautifully composed section and they give us some precious truths about Jesus that we need to know if we're going to grow in patient obedience and grateful worship. So let's look closely at verses 17 and 18. And this is where we'll spend the rest of our time together this morning. Because these are the verses that I want to hold out before us this morning so that with every step through them, we have a bigger and more grand and majestic and beautiful picture of the Jesus that he might be preeminent. The first two steps in verse 17 are really huge leaps. If if I was on the glacier, I wouldn't have enough courage to take them. They're huge. Look at what it says. The first half of verse 17. And he is before all things. The second half of verse 17. And in him all things hold together. How big is Jesus here? Don't let these little phrases get lost in the middle of all the poetry. Think for a moment with me. Think. Look at the text. What is the scale that we are dealing with here? The scale is huge. It's huge. We are dealing here with Jesus and the entire universe. That's the scale. Do you remember your history class at school? If it was anything like my history class, maybe you had a timeline up on the wall that helped you keep track of important dates. And so you you started by working your way back. I grew up in the 20th century, late 20th century. So the big thing was 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And you move further back. And you see 1945, 
the end of World War II. And then on back you go, 1918, the end of the Great War. And on it goes. And you can go further back, couldn't you? You could go, go back in great leaps and bounds. Maybe you go back to the Industrial Revolution before that. And then from there, you go back to the Enlightenment. And before that, to the Middle Ages. And eventually, you go all the way back to the Roman Empire. And that time that we measure our calendars and time from, that time when we shift from B.C. to A.D., when Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem under the Emperor Augustus. And yet, what does our text say? Jesus is before all things. That wasn't the beginning of Jesus when he was born in a manger in Bethlehem. He was before all things. He is before all things. So we keep going back on the timeline, back before his birth. Maybe we go back to ancient China and ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt. And we go back even before any written records historically are available. And our text tells us, and he is before all things. And maybe we push it all the way back as far as the, the, the arrow of time can go if we trace it in reverse. Back to that point when everything began. When God created everything, and our text tells us he is before all things. There is no further back to go, and yet Jesus is before all things. Is your Jesus getting a bit bigger as we take this step in the text? Because what God reveals to us here is that Jesus is not just a man who lived and died on a cross and rose again in the early centuries A.D. under Roman rule. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is before all things. And there was never a time when Jesus was not. That's who the Jesus text is. But the word before there, in this first little clause, this first little phrase of verse 17, can also have the sense of above. Jesus is not just before, in the sense of temporal priority, before all created things, Jesus, this text wants to also have us think, is exalted above, high above all created things. He's exalted above entire creation. Now we're in the realm, not of timelines, but maybe of, of Google Earth. Do you ever play with the little Google Earth app? Do you have that maybe on your phone? My kids love this. So for geography, whenever we're talking about a place in the world, they love to go to Google Earth and see where this is. And of course, you know how it works. You pull up the app, and it knows where you are. And so for us, it knows exactly where we are in North London, and that's where it starts. But what happens then? With a little pinch of my fingers, we zoom out so that it's no longer North London, it's Greater London. And then I pinch again, and we zoom out again. Now it's the entire UK. Another pinch, and now I can see Europe, and Africa, and the Middle East. A few more pinches, and now I'm looking down on planet Earth from the vantage point somewhere in space, and I can see this beautiful planet. Well, imagine if you could keep going beyond what Google Earth offers and you zoom out even further and you see the entire solar system. You go further. You see the entire galaxy and you go as far as you can. But of course, you can't step outside of the universe, can you? And yet, no matter how far you go, how far you zoom out, what does our text tell us? He is above all things, exalted above 
all things. That is how big, how great the Jesus of verse 17 is. Let's take another step, shall we? The second half of verse 17. Look what it says. And in him all things hold together. All things hold together. What this reveals to us about Jesus is even more, if possible, mind-boggling. It's, it's a bit like sci-fi, but it's, it's better than sci-fi. It's, it's true. In him all things hold together. Everything in creation holds together, coheres, is upheld by the word of the Son's power. Scientists tell us that there are something like 100,000 million stars, 100,000 million, I don't even know how many zeros that would be, in our Milky Way galaxy alone, something on the order of 100 billion in the universe. that, That just doesn't even, that boggles the mind because of the scale we're talking about. And yet, verse 17, all things hold together in him. Each and every one of those stars upheld by Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The director, Terrence Malick, some of you may know his films, uh, had a film a few years back called The Tree of Life. And there's a beautiful, breathtaking sequence in this film where there are nebulae swirling, planets that are forming, stars that are dying. And then it zooms in, and you've got DNA twining Volcanoes bursting, plants photosynthesizing, newborn babies taking their first breath, elderly people in hospice taking their last breath, light spreading through the canopy of a gorgeous green tree. And that swirl of images presents us with the beauty, something of the beauty and the complexity of life, of all that exists. And this text tells us that Over all of that, ordering all of that in wisdom, upholding all of it moment by moment, stands Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. The Lord Jesus Christ. So two steps into verse 17. How are we doing? How big is your Jesus? Are you at all awed by his glory and majesty and power? Or is Jesus just a historical figure for you? Just a first century Jew who lived and died in Palestine. Just an interesting religious teacher. If that is your sense of who Jesus is, then I've got to plead with you to let this text explode that and replace it with a true and majestic image of who Jesus is. Jesus is God. Jesus is the eternal, powerful, majestic Son of God. He is before all things, he is above all things, and in him all things hold together. And if you are not a Christian here this morning, this is something serious for you to reckon with. I hope that you're hearing what this text is saying. Because this means that you can't simply dabble with Jesus. You can't simply hold Jesus at arm's length as someone who's interesting to think about to hear about, to hear from. Because this Jesus is the one who upholds you at the cellular level, the beating of your heart, your very life and breath. If he withdrew that, you would crumble into dust and nothingness. That's who Jesus is. And if you have not come to Jesus and repented of your sin, cast yourself down at the foot of his cross and asked for his mercy, then this majestic, glorious Jesus, the eternal Son of God, 
will only be to you a judge standing over you in condemnation and not a savior, a gracious savior. So I've got to plead with you. If you are not a Christian this morning, that's who Jesus is. Where do you stand with him? You need to contemplate that and take that seriously. But if you're a believer here this morning, I hope these small steps closer to Jesus have filled you with a greater awe for your Savior, a wonder at how big and majestic he is this morning. In the Chronicles of Narnia, those stories by C.S. Lewis for children, it's a beautiful passage in the first story where the character of Aslan is introduced. Now, I know some of the children will have read this and others too. Aslan is the lion who serves as a kind of Christ figure in the stories. And as he's introduced, let me just read a little bit of the dialogue to you. The little girl Lucy says, is, is, is Aslan a man? Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of beasts is? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. So this morning, as we look at verse 17, and we realize how great our Jesus is, don't you dare domesticate him. Don't you dare suppose that Jesus is your genie in a bottle and is something small. Jesus does not exist for you. You exist for him, and so do all things. That's the Jesus that we need to exalt and worship this morning. Well, we go on from here, and we're going to take another step forward. So if I'd ask you to look down just again at the text you've got before you, because in verse 18, it continues to grow. Our vision of Jesus continues to be enlarged, and he is the head of the body, the church. Where before we saw Jesus in relation to all things, the entire universe, now we see Jesus in connection with the church. Jesus is the head. The church is his body. The Bible reaffirms this truth in many places. The church owes her very existence to Jesus. The church is protected by Jesus. The church is ruled and directed by Jesus. John Calvin put it this way, Christ alone has the authority to govern the church. Our own Westminster Confession agrees with that and summarizes the Bible's teaching when it says that Jesus is the king and the head of the church. There is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. The Pope in Rome is not the head of the church. The Archbishop of Canterbury is not the head of the church. No priest, no bishop, No minister is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, his body. Only Jesus is the head. So what does that mean for us? Well, it means, first of all, that Jesus is the one who is in charge. He's the one with supreme authority. And what he tells us in his word is what we must do in the church. 
What he tells us in this book about how the church is to be organized and how it is to conduct itself is the last word, the authoritative word, the only word that we must obey. And it also means, and hear this, it also means that the place to grow in your knowledge of Jesus, your love of Jesus, your service of Jesus, is where? In the church. In the church. This has implications, this truth, for our engagement with worship, the worship of Christ's church. Do you want to grow as a Christian? Do you want to grow spiritually? How does that happen? Well, it's not, first and foremost, to go off on your own at home and open up your Bible and read your Bible and pray. It's not firstly by going off and listening to a podcast of your favorite preacher or by watching YouTube videos or by going to great Christian conferences. It's not even primarily through attending a regular Bible study with people associated with the church. All of these things are great. They're wonderful. They are helps to us. But the primary way to grow in your knowledge and love of Jesus is to do what we're doing right now to gather with the people of God and to be formed as the people of God as we engage together in the worship of God and hear the word of God. That's how to grow, first and foremost. Christ is the head of the body, the church, and it's in the gathered worship of the church that we come to know Jesus most powerfully. Lord's Day worship like this. We are formed to be grateful Christians, knowledgeable Christians, prayerful Christians, Christians who are knowing that they are forgiven and able to forgive others. Because it's in this, in the worship of God together, that Christ knits us together as his body most powerfully. And we are joined as his body to him, the head. Christ is the head of his body, the church. Worship is where the action is. But it's not just that. We've got to think about a few other applications of this truth, that Christ is the head of his church. We need to talk about church membership for a moment. This has implications for church membership. Now, some of you this morning might be visiting us for the first time. Others are passing through London, and you have already become a member of a gospel-proclaiming congregation somewhere else, and that's a wonderful thing. But many of you here this morning who are with us frequently and who are not members of this congregation. Now, maybe you've left your membership elsewhere when you moved to London, and you just haven't got round to joining this church, or maybe you've got other questions or thoughts or hesitations. But when we look at what verse 18 tells us, that Christ is the head of the body, the church, one implication of that is that if you want to be joined properly to the head, you need to be joined to his body, the visible people of God, a congregation where you are worshiping locally. You need to be a member of the church. And to become a member of the church, of course, means to profess publicly your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those vows that we've heard even in recent months from new members standing here in front of us and taking vows that they know that they're sinners in need of salvation from their sin, that they acknowledge that God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has provided a way through Jesus Christ for them to be redeemed. You need to do that. And you need to do that in this congregation. 
And we would love to talk to you about that, not just because that would make us happy or not just because we would love your company and love to see our numbers grow, but because that's what the king says we should be doing. He's the head of the body, and he has directed us to join ourselves in membership to his church. So not only worship, but also church membership are applications for us from the first part of verse 18. We we have to go on, though. We need to consider further. Christ is the head of the body, his church. Once you've been joined to Christ by faith, once you've joined yourself to the church by a profession of faith and membership, you place yourself under Christ's authority in this local congregation. And as the head of the church, Jesus appoints men to be officers in the church. Those are our elders and our deacons. And particularly, through his representatives, the elders, Jesus, as the head of the church, guides and directs and disciplines his people so that they might grow and live lives worthy of him. Now, your ministers, Andy and Harrison, who are elders, the rest of us who are ruling elders, Adam and Dick and Gabriel and myself, we will be the first to tell you that we fail miserably and often at that task that we have been entrusted by our head and the king. And yet we also take that very seriously. It's a responsibility that we have been given to pray for you, to help see that you are being taught according to the word of God, to speak to you about your Christian life, to admonish you when you are not living according to God's word, if need be, to discipline you so that there might be repentance and you might be brought back. Because Jesus is the head of the body, his church, and the head has appointed us as elders to look after your spiritual welfare. We take that seriously. And on your end, as you come to this text this morning, what does that mean? It means that you need to prayerfully and humbly submit to Christ, the head of the church, and those that he has appointed to look over your spiritual well-being and growth. So not only worship, not only church membership, but also all that's entailed by coming under church discipline and submitting to the authority of Christ's delegates in the church. One final consideration here. Jesus is the head. The church is his body. What does that imply for congregational life amongst us? Our relationships with one another. Well, if Jesus is the head of the body, this has implications for how we treat one another, how we relate to one another. If you love Jesus... You've got to also love the members of the congregation. Now, you might say, the first part of that's really easy to do, Brad. Jesus is perfect. He's king, but you're not. And neither is the person sitting next to me. And that's completely true. But if you love the head, brothers and sisters, you have also got to love the body, the members of the body. Whether you instantly get on with them or not. Whether they frustrate you and annoy you at times or not. Whether they always forgive you, you are called to forgive them because Jesus is the head and we are all part of the body. And there is no way in which dishonoring or neglecting those members of the body can possibly give honor and glory to the head. It just doesn't work that way. So falling out with others in the congregation, speaking behind someone's back, holding a grudge, Assuming a suspicious 
or a condemning stance against a brother or sister, maybe without full knowledge of what's going on, that's not acceptable because Jesus is the head and we are the body. And what brings him honor is humble fellowship. What brings him glory is forgiving and serving one another in love. And what brings the head great joy is brothers and sisters dwelling together in unity. We can't disconnect the head from the body. And we shouldn't think about Jesus without thinking about the church. He is the head of the body. So submit to his headship. Engage with worship in his church. Be a member of his church. Submit to the oversight of his church. Pursue the unity and loving fellowship of his church because he's the head of the body. Now we take our last step. Here's our final step, and it's a shorter step to take. And as we take this last step again, we get closer and Jesus grows bigger. Because look down again at verse 18 as we move on. What does verse 18 say? It says, it says that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. We've thought about Jesus and the universe. We've thought about Jesus and the church. Now we have to think about Jesus and you and me individually. Because there's, this, uh, there's again a danger here. I have on my desk in my office a photo. I've got photos of the family, but I have one photo that's right there on my desk next to the monitor of my computer. And you can guess what it is. It's a photo of my wife, of us on our wedding day. And I love that photo, and I I look at that photo at various points through my working day and working week, and I love to think about my wife, and then I'm going to get to go home at the end of the day. But you know what I love even more than looking at that photo and thinking about Kathy? Even better is a date night. I've got to tell you, it's much better than a photo, because then I'm not just looking at a picture of her, then I'm with her. Then I'm sitting with her. I'm talking with her. I've got my arm around her. I'm in her presence. And if this text only gives us more information about Jesus, then we've missed the point. We want Jesus, don't we? We want to be in his presence. And we want to draw these things near to ourselves. So that's what we have to do in our final minutes together this morning. In the rest of verse 18. Look again at the text of scripture. He's the beginning, the firstborn of head. We've seen Jesus as divine, majestic, glorious. We've seen him as the king and head of the church. And now, now we see Jesus as the source of new creation life. New creation life. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who was there at the beginning of all things, verse 16, by him all things were created. Jesus is the Son of God who took on human nature, took on human flesh, lived a sinless life, died an innocent death on the cross, verses 19 and 20, look at it. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, how? By the blood of his cross. And now in our text, verse 18, Jesus is the resurrected one. He's the one who's been raised to new life again as the first fruits, the firstborn from the dead and the beginning of the new creation. Do you want life? Do you want life? Do you want new creation life? Do you want real spiritual life? Not just going through the motions, but deadened every day. Do you want life? This is the source of life. Jesus is the beginning 
of all things, of the new creation. He's the resurrected one who can give you resurrection life, who can raise dead souls to new life. That's who Jesus is. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, uh, I'm sorry, if you're not a Christian here, I want to start with you as we finish. Once again, I've got to plead with you, so please listen carefully. You've been very patient, but can I ask for your attention just once more as we finish? We've seen lots of things about who Jesus is this morning. But if you are not a professing Christian, I want to plead with you this morning. I want to urge you to consider your relationship to this Jesus revealed here in this text of God's word. Because you might say you're aware of Jesus, you're interested in him, all of that. But if you don't know Jesus, know him personally as a savior who has forgiven your sins and has raised you to new life, then you don't know Jesus. And it would be a tragedy for you to leave this room this morning without knowing this one whom this text holds out before us. This one who isn't just so huge and majestic and glorious that he holds the entire universe together, but this one who took on flesh and died on a Roman cross, shedding his blood for your sin, to forgive you your sins, and to give you new resurrection life. Life that you can enjoy now, and life that you will enjoy beyond the grave, because you will live in his presence eternally. That's what Jesus offers to you this morning. Please would you take it. But if you are, as many of you are in this room this morning, already a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, what do you need to do? You need, you need by faith to draw all of this near to you. You need to to reach out by faith and take hold of these things that Jesus is, take hold of this Jesus, who he is, and draw him near to you by faith. Because you've taken several steps closer and closer to an amazing Jesus this morning. But you need to draw him near to yourself because it's very easy to know these things but not to truly live in them. So let's do that as we finish. What has our text told us about this Jesus? What can we draw near to ourselves this morning? By faith in Jesus, what is true of the Son of God is true of you. What's true in our text about the Son of God? He is the beloved Son of the Father. That means if you belong to Jesus, if you're united to him by faith as a son or a daughter, the Father showers his love upon you. He has only love for you and no condemnation. Draw that near to your heart by faith this morning. Our text tells us that Jesus is the one who reconciles sinners to God. We were his enemies, but now, but now in Jesus, we are reconciled to God. You are reconciled to God. Jesus, our text tells us, is an exalted king. But it's not just that. He is your king. Draw him near to you as your king. He rules and defends you and your family and this church. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, our text tells us. Well, draw that near to yourself and know, know for certainty that Jesus will also raise you beyond the grave and that when you reach your last hour, you don't need to be afraid because you know that he has already passed through death to resurrection life. Brothers and sisters, this morning, we've seen a lot of things about Jesus. He's glorious. He's immense. He's majestic. And he's precious. And we want to draw him near by faith so that, verse 18, 
in everything he might be preeminent. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this vision of your Son, which we can hardly take in. We cast ourselves before you now, knowing how sinful we are, how finite we are, and yet how great and gracious you are. And we ask that you would seal these truths to our hearts today and in the week ahead, that we might walk worthily of you and we might worship you as you deserve. We ask it in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.